This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. The sports mentality in American politics and identity has never really been too far of a concept to comprehend. But recent depths of interviews and analysis across political spectrums have increasingly revealed that sometimes ideology and the way that we perceive our teams to be are very, very different than the actual policy issues themselves and where we might land on one of them. In fact, Recent research by the University of Maryland showcases that when it comes to American politics and American identity, that we might be a lot closer on the issues than we would have ever perceived, but much further apart when it comes to what team or ideology do we occupy. Zed Jelani, a reporter for The Intercept, recently had a chance to talk with Professor Laurel Mason about her recent research, unpacking this distinction between the team sports mentality of politics and joins American Enough to unpack how we specifically bridge this divide in an era in which our sense of who we are is a lot different than the sense of what it is that we actually think we believe when it comes to the policies and politics of our time. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. For years, American identity has always been driven by tribes. Whether you're a fan of a certain sports team, fan of a certain political party, a fan of a certain flavor of ice cream, or even just examining the tale of two cities that has always divided red states and blue states, it's in, it's been sort of part and parcel that the way that American identity has formed has been this us versus them mentality. But for far too long, we've examined this as just a innate part of who we are, a deliberative process of our democracy, and frankly touted it as a way in which we can have thorough debates, examine policies, and ultimately compromise towards the middle to devise a path forward. But the distinction between a person's ideological identity, maybe their beliefs, their values, their religion, their politics, and ultimately the positions that they actually stake on all of those issues, has become more clearly in focus in recent research. Scholars have not only pointed out a significant difference between identity of who we define ourselves as and who we believe ourselves to be, but they've also defined that significant difference between that form of identity and issue-based ideology on a whole host of political concepts, ideas, and even policy solutions. However, that effective and social effect of these separate elements of ideology have never really been sufficiently explored. If anyone turns on the TV today, you might see one set of identities in which we believe that there's the Facebook community of the left and the Facebook community of the right. And if you turn on another channel, you might see the news of the left and the news of the right. And if you just observe any of our neighbors or community members or mosque goers or church goers, we may just assume that we all separate out as different people. But more and more, as tensions flare up in America, not just around divisions of politics, but divisions around who is American enough and who has the sense of patriotism worthy of living in this country and succeeding in this country, those divisions are being codified in the political debate and even being attempted to be codified in law. Zed Jelani actually recently explored this by examining the recent work of Professor Lillian Mason a University of Maryland researcher who outlined in her recent paper, Ideologues Without Issues, that much of the polarizing effect in America may not actually be as in-depth as we may believe. Sometimes surface-level differences are just surface-level differences. But Zed specifically takes a look at what happens when our politics become too shallow, Do we end up creating divisions for no apparent reason, or do those divisions actually harden and crystallize two distinct camps in America or more that take us back to a a posture in which we can't really reclaim the mantle of American identity? Joining American Enough today is journalist for The Intercept, Zaid Jelani. Zaid, thanks for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here. 
So I, I, wa I wanted to ask you a little bit about your recent report with The Intercept and your thoughts on Professor Mason's work, but specifically your your time as a journalist has covered sort of the rise of political tribalism over the arc of time. And I want to start um, with a more recent set of events around 2008-2009. Um, we were on the heels of the of an economic downturn, um, you know, colloquially referred to here as our great recession of the modern era. And we were also on the heels of the election of the first black president in the United States. And around that time, we also saw a very, very interesting rise of, of political outcry, folks that were claiming the economy wasn't working for them, folks that were being mobilized by groups like the Koch brothers to go out and protest the arrival of President Obama, and within the halls of Congress, the apparent rise of a faction known as the Tea Party. I was curious, at that point in time, it became very clear that tribalism wasn't just something that we could talk about or political scientists could point to, but it was actually fomenting in the way that groups were clustering, voting, and electing people into office. How would you sort of examine that rise of the Tea Party then, and what was sort of fueling that division in America? Well, it's really interesting, and I get into this a little bit in the article, is that um, President Obama, I think, made one of his, made, I, you know, if you were to talk to him, I'm sure he would say that one of his greatest regrets was that he couldn't kind of heal a lot of the the, uh, the tribalism that was being fomented in America even before he came into office. So in 2004, um, you know, he gave a very memorable speech at the Democratic Convention where he basically said there is no red America, there is no blue America, you know, people worship God in blue America, people have gay friends in red America, like, it's a completely artificial distinction kind of ginned up by, um, you know, political prognosticators. And, you know, we should be able to come together. And honestly, you know, I was living in Georgia when he was elected and uh, he performed better in Georgia than uh, any Democrat had in quite a while. And part of that was because I actually, you know, there were quite a few um, people, I think, who swung over to him because they were they were sort of entranced by that vision. You know, they felt like that was. Uh, that spoke truly to them. They, they they didn't really like the level of, um, particularly towards the end of the Bush presidency. You know, the, President Bush himself was very, very polarizing. He had a very low approval rating, sort of like the current president. Um, he had enacted a number of very polarizing policies. And I think a lot of people honestly did uh, have hopes in Barack Obama to kind of heal that, uh, to be able to build kind of a grand Obama coalition that would work together on these big problems. And I think, you know, you saw that also through his legislative strategy. I think he worked very hard, for instance, to get Republican votes for health care reform. Uh, he didn't end up succeeding in that, but they tried very, very hard, for instance, to get Chuck Grassley's vote, um, to get the vote of one of the main one of Maine's Republican senators, because I think he fundamentally did really believe that was a sort of a necessary thing for the United States to be able um, to have cross-partisan, bipartisan work um, and not just have sure tribal divisions deciding policy. Um, but I think ultimately, um, you know, we saw, I think, you know, if you if you roll back the clock to 2009, you have to remember this was actually a very like traumatic time for a lot of Americans. Um, we saw sort of the worst sort of economic hit to the United States since at least you could say maybe the 1980s, but some people would even go back to the Great uh, Depression um, with the so-called Great Recession. We saw um, African American housing wealth was pretty much completely wiped out. Um, you know, we had sort of a budding black middle class that was built in the 1990s, and a lot of their wealth was just completely destroyed by the recession. Um, a lot of people, particularly in rural states um, where the economy wasn't very robust to begin with, um, were hit by very severe subprime mortgage crisis, very high unemployment rates. And a lot of that has rolled over now into an opioid crisis. Um, so in, in the midst of all that trauma, I think it's not just, you know, unfortunately, I think when the, the politics is often based around social networks and tribes, people often look for someone, I think, who's trying to assuage them, make them feel good about themselves, give themselves some pride, give themselves some self-esteem. A lot of them know things are going to be okay, and that's not always uh, people being organized around the policies, right? There wasn't um, really an economic movement geared around addressing the the crises and the inequalities of the Great Recession until, I guess, Occupy Wall Street. And that was, at that point, by 2011, the country was so polarized that it was primarily a left-wing movement. Um, so I think, you know, in, in that vacuum of sort of trauma, what was happening in 2009, I think a lot of the Tea Party type folks stepped in. Um, a lot of sort of powerful right-wing groups that 
um, kind of exists to polarize people. That's part of their political strategy is to polarize people and to create a social network that's exclusive to one group of people um, and to use it against another. And I think that kind of countered what President Obama was trying to do fairly successfully because it was in the context of a very, very severe uh, recession and a lot of economic suffering for people. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, if you look in 2012, I don't remember who wrote the article. I think it may have been, I want to say maybe it was Ed Kilgore, but it was probably someone else. But they wrote an article actually um, noting that there was a huge sort of decrease in sort of uh, the white vote in 2012 from 2008. Like it was, there was, is something like the missing white voters was the name of the article. Because so many people that had crossed over and had originally voted for Barack Obama, believing um, that he would be a transformational, transcendental um, kind of leader, I think after the Great Recession and sort of the um, the trauma that caused, you know, a lot of them just dropped out of the political process. So I think, unfortunately, this uh, this sort of vortex of factors from very well-funded sort of polarizing right-wing um, activism, uh, the the trauma of the Great Recession. Um, you know, this helped break apart sort of Barack Obama's idea of sort of a post-tribal, post-polarization kind of American coalition. Um, and I think people today have a very hard time wrapping their minds around how you would how you would get to to the, the vision that Barack Obama spoke about in 2004, because, you know, it used to be the case that in the United States, um, you know, Congress used to have much higher approval ratings. Uh, the presidency and institutions were much more trusted. There wasn't nearly as much partisanship in terms of votes in Congress. For instance, um, the Affordable Care Act, which was actually a fairly conservative plan thought up by the Heritage Foundation and enacted by Mitt Romney at one point in his state, um, you know, it didn't did not get any Republican votes. Yeah, if you go back to the history of Medicare, actually quite a few Republicans voted for Medicare, even though it was proposed by a Democratic president, right? Um, at that point, the party's sole function wasn't just to get one on, get one over to the other party, which is unfortunately often their behavior today. Um, that's part of why there hasn't been a fix on immigration. Uh, if you look at the polls on immigration, most Americans actually have broad uh, agreement on things like a pathway to citizenship uh, on the Dreamers. Uh, most Republicans support something being done for the Dreamers so they can stay. Uh, and yet when I go to Congress and I talk to members of Congress, it's very clear to me that they are treating it as a partisan tribal issue um, to basically try to block a bill so they can say the other bill blocked, the other party blocked it. Um, you know, when, when politics becomes like that, it stops being about the issues, which is fundamentally why we have a government, so that we can craft and build and sustain a just society. But when it simply becomes about, you know, people in a different social network uh, of a different demographic, racial, or, uh, you know, their rural versus urban, suburban, et cetera, et cetera, when it simply becomes about pitting those groups against each other, then I think we lose sight of what we actually believe in in discussing how to solve the problems. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, I think Barack Obama recognized this problem very early on. He tried very hard um, to resolve that, but through a confluence of, of sort of really terrible factors in the country, uh, wasn't able to kind of bridge that divide. And what do you what do you think is driving that, um, as you write in your piece, that surface level, almost shallow like um, approach to policymaking? You know, if on the one hand, in your conversations with elected officials, um, past and present, there are very, very, uh, you know, acute concerns for policy considerations like immigration, like global trade and beyond. Um, and there are also real agreements or areas of potential agreement. Um, what political motivation, or I, I guess I should even ask anthropological motivation, does a politician have between stating the policy opportunity and then whole hog rejecting it? And, and I recognize that might sound like a bit of a naive question given all the confluence of challenges that you just laid out. But it would seem to me that, um, you know, on the heels of uh, Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona bowing out this year on the heels of um, our current Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, stating that he no longer wants to seek re-election, that drip by drip, there is not only an outcry from politicians that our politics is getting way too divisive, but people are actually just bowing out of the system altogether. Would that not uh, you know, sort of jolt any current incumbents to try and move past that and try and create good policy? Or is it just way more, um, you know, theatrically convenient to point at the other, blame the other, and then use that to, to safeguard your own position in the body politic? 
Um, you know, well, unfortunately, I think part of the way that elected officials are acting these days is reflected in kind of what's happened in terms of the breakup of the general populace. So I would say from basically the post-war period in World War II up through the civil rights era, uh, we had what was called the New Deal Coalition. And the New Deal Coalition um, was a vast coalition of people. It was racially diverse. It was um, diverse geographically, diverse by occupation. Um, it was a vast coalition of people basically uh, that were moving the country on the economy, on social issues, uh, on infrastructure, on jobs. And that coalition was broken up basically by two things, I would say. Uh, one was a civil rights struggle, um, which part of the coalition, particularly in the South, uh, rebelled against. And the second was the war in Vietnam. And the war in Vietnam, you know, is often, we often talk about it as like a foreign policy issue, but it was also kind of a domestic tribal issue in the sense that um, it often pitted uh, sort of hippies versus people who are perceived uh, to be patriotic or people who are perceived to be part of the war economy. So, you know, something a lot of people don't know about was that actually a lot of the unions supported the Vietnam War uh, because it was good for their industries. So they actually, that group of people actually rebelled against uh, mostly college-educated anti-war activists, believing them basically to be attacking their livelihood. Um, so there were all these kind of social cleavages that were created at that point. And I think we had political entrepreneurs who saw those cleavages as opportunities. Hey, I can get one up on my opponent if I start bashing X, Y, and Z. I mean, we know that, for instance, the, the war on drugs um, was blatantly admitted now by people who worked for Richard Nixon, that they were targeting certain social groups, whether it be African-Americans or anti-war activists, by what they were trying to criminalize and enforce. So I think these social cleavages, unfortunately, you know, they pulled people apart in a way that made it very difficult for people to kind of recognize common interests, for people to recognize that actually their belief structures are not that far from each other, um, that actually there's broad consensus in America then and now on a wide range of issues. Um, and I think we've also seen kind of a rise of a partisan media. First, that happened on cable news with Fox News. Uh, later, MSNBC kind of created their own version of this. And now we've seen it with social media. Um, if you look at maps of social media, um, you see that a lot of uh, what people share is kind of shared within people who identify the same way um, under their ideology. Like liberals are sharing with liberals, conservatives are sharing with conservatives. Um, and I think in that environment, politicians have a good incentive to just get up there, hold a press conference about how terrible their opponent is, about um, you know all kinds of ideological uh, digs at the opponent in terms of, hey, this is, you know, he's just a liberal, he has no, uh, you know, he's soft on crime, et cetera, et cetera. Um, conservatives have, you know, uh, or liberals have their own version of this, um, rather than actually getting, putting their nose to the ground and being able to accomplish things where, you know, 70% of the country agrees on basic tenets of what immigration reform looks like, right? It really wouldn't be that controversial to pass the bill if we just talked about what we agreed on. Um, but unfortunately, I think in this environment, which is a reflection of society and how politicians can exploit that um, for their for the incentives they have. Uh, unfortunately, they you know they can't work together on those issues, and it's it's remarkable. Some of the few issues where you do see politicians work together on in Washington tend to be issues where they can't easily exploit it for political gain, or they can't you know run attack ads on it. They can't uh, pander to tribal media. So, for instance, like the defense budget, right? <laughs> Both parties, uh, major parties, basically agree we should have a very large defense budget. And there's usually very little dissent about that. And that mostly is because they are kind of, uh, you know, that's not something that's publicly debated, right? It's something that uh, there's various people who work in the industry who want, who want the budget to be very large, and they all agree with each other, and they, it's not a liberal or conservative thing, and so they just get it done. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the issues, once they're debated into public, uh, it immediately becomes, hey, some liberal said some stupid gaffe. So, you know, this that that they represent everyone who does this. Well, you know, you can't agree with a liberal uh, or vice versa. Um, and unfortunately, in that environment, uh, which I again, I think first cable news made that much worse. And then second, social media made that worse. And if we're really going all the way in, in terms of describing where the problem comes from, the first pass the post electoral system kind of incentivizes that, too, because you have two major parties. Uh, meaning that when one party screws up, the other one automatically benefits, and they always have an incentive to fight each other. Whereas if you look at like Germany or Israel or Sweden, uh, countries that might have eight or nine political parties, they have more of an incentive to form coalitions around issues, uh, to run based on issues. It's not just this guy screwed up, so throw the bums out and put me in, because there's more than two parties. Um, so that also contributes to it, although we've had that for a long time, and I think the polarization has gotten worse 
uh, independent of that as well. And, you know, specifically, if you take that a step further, it kind of means that our, you know, democracy or, or governance um, gets a lot harder, right? And and you even point this out in, in your coverage of uh, Professor Mason's work here that if, if, you know, rhetorically begging the question that if your goal in politics is not exactly based around um, substantive policymaking and outcomes, but simply just defeating your, your perceived enemies, um, then we all have to ask ourselves, both as constituents of our elected officials, but also among our elected officials, what the heck are we working towards? Um, can, can you break down a little bit of what uh, Professor Mason's work actually aimed to unpack and what some of her high-level findings were in terms of what we can take away as to why our current elected officials are motivated in this current capacity? Yeah, so basically... Um... Her study was called uh, Ideologies Without Issues, The Polarizing Consequences of Ideological Identities. Uh, it was published in the spring in Public Opinion Quarterly, um, which, uh, you know, tends to study sort of, you know, I guess you could say it's, it's, it is what it says it is. It studies um, sort of where Americans stand on things. Um, she used data from uh, a study um, called the American National Election Studies, which ANES, which is very common in this kind of stuff. You see it quoted a lot. And also uh, data from Survey Sampling International, and it was 2016 data, which is you know pretty up to date. And basically, what she did is she looked at two things. So one, she looked at uh, how strongly do people identify as liberal or conservative or somewhere in between. So there was a scale there, right? Uh, and then she also looked at six major issues. One was immigration, uh, the Affordable Care Act, abortion, same-sex marriage, gun control, and the relative importance of reducing the deficit on employment. So a pretty sort of broad range. And what she did is she sought to sort correlate where you are in all those things and self-identification um, with what's called, um, you know, various indicators of what's of like social distance and social distance means like, you know, in your daily life, how would you interact with people? Um, so um, she looked at questions that asked, uh, for instance, would you want to live next door to someone who is X, Y, or Z? Would you want to marry that person? Would you want to spend social times with them? Would you want friend be friends with them? Um, and what's amazing is what she found is that on the issues, they aren't super strong predictors of those things. Uh, there's some effect there, like, um, you know, if you disagree very, if you happen to have a certain position on immigration and the person who lives next door to you has a completely opposite one, you might have some un uncomfortability with that. You might be somewhat uncomfortable with that. Um, but when it came to ideology, she found, I think, something like twice as strong of an effect, um, meaning if you very strongly identify as a liberal, no matter where you are on the issues, because that's the funny thing is that see, sometimes these identifications mean so little that like it doesn't necessarily say where you actually stand on the issues if you just say you strongly identify as a liberal. Right, so, right. You know, it's just they, basically they, the name of your team in some effect. Right, right. And this is something that's been consistently found, uh, found, I think, when people research this. But if you strongly identify as a liberal or a conservative, that's a much stronger indicator of whether you want to marry someone um, or live next door to them or just even be friends with them. Uh, then it, even if you're very much to the left on the issues or very much to the right on the issues, like that doesn't matter nearly as much as the ideological label that you adopt. Um, and basically, you know, the conclusion from that was that a lot of our social distancing is really being done entirely based on the label that you apply to yourself. And I guess, you know, I don't think she went all the way to saying this, but, you know, the conclusion you would grab from that is that you have a certain perception of what the other people are based on the label rather than what they actually believe. Um, and I think that's a lot of, you know, like we were talking about earlier, if you watch cable news, if you watch Fox or MSNBC, there's a lot of just sort of like straw manning against, man, this is this liberal, this is the liberal worldview, this is what the liberals believe, this is what the conservatives believe. They don't spend nearly as much time saying, well, actually, you know, most Americans are kind of on the middle on immigration and they want something done and, you know, this is what we're, um, you know, and... They, and they, they love like having someone get on there and kind of argue as the token liberal, the token conservative. It sets up a worldview um, where you really do imagine the other people just don't agree with you on anything. And like, you know, there's totally 180 from you um, that your, your camps and your tribes can't interact. So, of course, you couldn't tolerate living next to them. Of course, you couldn't tolerate marrying them because you'd be arguing all the time. Right. You know, you just you know, your, 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 uh, your, your worlds can't coexist. Um, but it's interesting, like if you look at the AENS data and she told me this is like, actually, most people were fairly moderate on most of these things. Like there actually wasn't that much polarization on the issues. It's really the polarization is really being driven by the self-identifying 
labels and the tribes, which is fascinating because it kind of goes against the point of, of democratic governance. The point of democratic governance is that uh, you know someone proposes a bill in Congress or in your state legislature, uh, people look at it, they critique it, they try to make it better, and it passes or fails based on what you actually believe about the underlying uh, policy bill or law that you're trying to pass. Um, it's not so much about you know we're just trying to defeat the other team. That wasn't the defining concept of governance, but increasingly it is the defining uh, factor, which is creating social distance um, among Americans politically. And in some respects, uh, I mean, just thinking out loud, it kind of feels that politicians, particularly successful politicians, take advantage of that social distancing, both in the camp of issues and in the camp of, you know, identity or, or what Mason calls ideology. So on the issue camp, um, you know, you saw Barack Obama, you referenced earlier in the conversation and in your, in your piece, the, the um, very lauded speech that he gave at the DNC when he talks about the fact that we're a lot closer than we think, not just in terms of the color of our states, but you, know, you could rationalize with someone who has religious beliefs, even if you find one to be overly zealous and the other to be too muted, you know, we can both ascribe towards a similar set of values. Or you can understand that in the instance of, you know, of a hot rod social wedge issue like abortion, that maybe there is some middle ground when it comes to instances of rape and incest, just as a straw man argument. But repeatedly, Barack Obama in making that in those sets of arguments, tried to use the camp of issues to say that if you split the line down the middle, we're not too far apart on the spread. And therefore, we ought to overcome that together as a nation, both through policies, but also uh, through our narrative of what we're fighting for. Um, and he was wildly successful in that. at that, some would argue, at a minimum, wildly successful in captivating the imagination of the country to be elected around that. Any other I, mean, ways, you have to, I mean, you have to remember, this was a... Um... This was a, uh, a biracial African American man with the name Barack Hussein Obama, who won, you know, the state of Iowa, right? Uh, the, it, under under uh, a process of intense tribalism, uh, that would never have been possible, right? Under under the idea that you are just with your social network and people who self-identify as, let's say, I self-identify as white, I self-identify as rural, I self-identify as conservative, you know, under a process of intense tribalism there would never have been a Barack Obama presidency, right? He had made so much success in that 2008 campaign and bringing so many people together and creating a fairly large coalition and winning states that, you know, 10, 15 years prior, no one would have believed um, that. I think that he really did believe that he could do that in governing as well. Um, but of course, there was a, like I, like, you know, I said earlier, there was a real confluence of sort of traumatic things happening in the country and a well-funded opposition that kind of, it, you know, it capitalizes on polarization. I mean, that that's the problem, is that the increasing polarization in society, politicians have that incentive to capitalize on it for short-term gains, right? It may not be good even for themselves over the long term. I don't think it's great for a lot of the Republicans in the long term to not be competitive at all, for instance, in urban areas, and to lose so much of the African-American vote, to have such a, sm a small, a diminishing number of uh, the Hispanic vote. In the long term, it's not even good for them. But in the short term, they have a very strong incentive to, to gin up that polarization. And that was that was perfectly demonstrated when shortly after um, the the election um, of I believe this is 2012, when uh, the then chairman um, and, and, you know, subsequent chief of staff to this current president, Rens Priebus, put out the playbook examining kind of a postmortem of what had happened with the party. It said, you know, we're, we're alienating women, we're alienating um, minorities that are soon to be majority in a few decades. Um, and instead of kind of drilling down on that, we quickly went the way of the 2016 primary among the GOP, um, in which polarization was the name of the game again. Uh, but, but the reason I mentioned the Barack Obama piece is, you know, whether we call it exploitation or not with him, he sort of tried to bridge the gap of America in the issue camp that Lillian Mason is referring to. When you take a look right. at the election of Donald Trump, one could argue, you know, whether you call it exploitation or not, again, that he really tried to take advantage of the ideology camp, the notion of labels of what is or isn't American, what is or isn't your sense of who is stealing our jobs, what is or isn't the realities of what you're facing at home or when you're upset yelling at the TV or yelling at your paycheck. And so in both instances, you had very charismatic, arguably charismatic 
politicians that were doing what they felt was the thing they needed to do get, to get elected, but seems to speak to the heart of how they see the world, that we're closer than we are on the issues or that we are who we are on the identity. And so I, I kind of want to juxtapose both of these pieces because it's not that Barack Obama or Donald Trump are the end-all, be-all politicians of our time, but... Do you think it's possible that these are the types of, of, of political identities that we see only continue to succeed in, in governance in America? You know, it seemed almost like by the time you got to Clinton-Trump, the level of um, mobilizing social networks and identity to be your political coalition had just been, you know, it had just been completely embraced as a strategy once more. Um, probably because Clinton and Trump felt like you know, they both felt with probably some level of justification that they were not facing as uphill of a climb as Barack Obama may have been facing when he was elected in 2008. Like Barack Obama could not have tried to isolate out his social network and use that to win the election. Like he couldn't have just said, OK, if you're a liberal, you're with me. If you're African-American, you're with me. If you're young, you're with me. Screw everyone else. That team sucks. Like he couldn't have won the election, period, had he done that right. Whereas with Clinton and with Trump, I really do feel like they were trying very hard to mobilize their social networks um, and their social identity networks and spend a lot of time just bashing the other candidate, which Obama really didn't do a whole lot of. He was very, you know, his campaign was very positive. Yes, they had some sharp disagreement on issues, but he didn't really have a whole lot of demonization towards either Clinton or McCain uh, or their supporters. Whereas with Clinton and Trump, they both had high profile moments where they both basically insulted each other's um, political supporters. Um, so it almost did seem like politics at that point have shifted to the idea like it's totally okay just to mobilize your identity base or your, you know, your your tribe and your social network against the other side and forget about building a broad coalition and forget about trying to come together on the issues. That's that's over. Maybe it was even a pragmatic decision for both of them. They both looked at the Obama presidency and said, okay, that strategy failed. Forget about that. We're going to do this instead. I mean, I, who knows what, what their thinking was internally about that. Um, but I do think, you know, when you say these are the two approaches, I mean, they kind of are. Um, and they both seem like they were necessitous at the time to the politicians who were approaching them, given the political environments of the time. Zed Jelani is a journalist hailing from Atlanta, Georgia, who currently writes for The Intercept, but has previously worked as a reporter and blogger for Think Progress, United Republic, the Progressive Change Campaign Committee, and Alternate. When we come back, we'll dig in with Zed what it looks like to create bridges across America when we have such deep division, and specifically divisions across 63 million Americans who felt like their opportunities and fair shakes haven't come their way quite yet. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, -N, at checkout. So, Zed, I, I want to sort of quickly drill down on something that um, felt like a little bit of a hanging chad in terms of Mason's conclusion, but seems to really be um, one of the most important prescriptions we can have for our country. And that's open your door, step outside, talk to your neighbors, talk to those who maybe disagree with you, who, as she points out, in the spectrum of ideologies or issues are kind of scattered in other ends of the, the axis on your map and, and start a dialogue. And, you know, to, to me personally, and specifically having, you know, podcasts looking at American identity, that makes a ton of sense. Um, in other instances, when we've seen this play out, there is sort of a, a question mark, and it could be cynicism, but a question mark of what that kind of communication does. You know, we saw notably Steve Case, um, you know, founder and, and former CEO of, of AOL and currently um, 
the, the head of revolution, um, in which he talked about the need for technology companies or just innovative businesses to, to take a look inward to the flyover states in the middle of the country and examine uh, growth opportunities for businesses there. We saw congressmen like Ro Khanna out of California spend some time in West Virginia shortly after the election. And perhaps most visibly, we saw uh, CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, do a bit of a uh, barnstorming tour of his own in which he he went and met with firefighters and, and users in Iowa and kind of did what smelt like the political thing to do, but was described by his communications team as really just trying to connect with his users in different parts of the country. Those amount to conversations. Uh, and yet, I guess I ask you as someone that has had conversations with folks throughout the United States, that has had conversations with many of those politicians that attempt to have those conversations throughout the United States. Is that sense of communication that, that Professor Mason speaks to a, a true prescription path forward? Is it something that is part one tool in the toolkit, or is that truly what we need as a nation to kind of bridge that tale of two cities? Well, it's interesting. I think right after the election, I'm trying to remember the exact quote because I didn't include it in this article, and um, I don't think I've used it in any writing, but I remember Barack Obama was interviewed after the 2016 election, and he was like... Um, you know, he was talking about how he won Iowa and he said something like, you know, I didn't win Iowa because I, you know, pandered this way or that way. I won Iowa because I don't know how many trips he mentioned. Yeah, I made 99 trips there or something. But basically what he was trying to communicate to people um, was that it wasn't about having a, a, you know, a magical formula to get through to people. It was just about showing up and listening and talking and like actually giving people a sense of representation. Um and he understood that very well. And like I said, that's, that's the only way someone with his kind of background, which is very unusual in American history, to, to become the president in the first place, because he understood that. Um, you know, whatever you think about his policy or whatever you think about, you know, his presidency, I think most people would agree that his, you know, his election was fairly remarkable in terms of how it was constructed and um, how many people doubted it could even happen. Um, so I think in terms of, you know, I've seen I've seen kind of a I've seen kind of a, uh, I guess, a ham-fisted attempt by some, for instance, in the liberal media outlets, like the New York Times has tried to do this on a number of occasions, where I think one of the top editors of the New York Times admitted after the election, well, we don't cover religion very well, like we don't understand it very well or something. And I, to me, that was kind of a jaw-dropping statement. I was like, this is the most prominent newspaper in America, and religion is pretty important in America, and they just say, well, they don't understand it. And like, you know, so I think they've made a number of kind of attempts to, okay, this day we will publish a op-ed by someone who's on the religious right, or, you know, we'll try to bring in some more conservatives or something. But a lot of that stuff comes across as somewhat patronizing, as tokenizing, as like, you know, we're just doing this to you because we don't understand you. You're like an alien specimen. So we'll, we'll put you in the spotlight for a second because we just don't understand you. And, you know, that stuff, I'm not sure that's, that's not really representation. That's not really dialogue. That's just like, you know, it's, it's sort of a, uh, kind of a, a Hail Mary pass by them saying, we just never understood these people, so we'll give them some spotlight right now. Um, but, you know, real representation really is about showing up and talking to people. And, you know, there's actually a group of people who, um, who worked for Bernie Sanders in the campaign who started an initiative called Knock Every Door. And so since the election, their basic thesis is that they're just going to go and do like canvassing, which is what you do during an election, but they're going to do it like full time. And they're going to just like talk about the things that they, you know, think that America needs, you know, which is maybe maybe in their minds would be universal health care, higher minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, I, you know, I, to me, that seemed like a more genuine effort to actually talk to people um, where they are than I think when, a, you know, one of these people like Mark Zuckerberg will like go and do take some photos in Iowa or something and pat people on the head like, like they, you know, like they're tourists, like, you know, it's like. To me, it's kind of like going on safari or something for these people, right? Like it's not – when you do that, when you go on safari in Kenya or something, it's not like you're really giving people in Kenya legitimate representation and you're really respecting what they have to say. Um, it's, funny, it's funny that you say that. Sorry to interrupt because we had a chance to talk with the mayor of South Bend, Indiana on the American Enough podcast, Pete Buttigieg. And, you know, he's he's had a lot of coverage lately in terms of 
how he rises as a politician out of, you know, a city like something. And in his conversation, he said, or in this conversation, he said that sometimes he's seen an uptick in activity of, of folks visiting. Oh, you know, what's South Bend like? You know, what's going on in Indiana that has this, you know, progressive, uh, gay, millennial mayor um, that maybe we can learn in the rest of the country. And it kind of feels like the delegations that arrive are all treating it like a Nat and Geo special. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I uh, I grew up and um, in uh, I grew up not too far from where Newt Gingrich represented uh, in Congress, where Bob Barr represented in Congress. Some of the most conservative members, actually, it was a conservative part even in Georgia, which is a little bit more of a conservative state. Um, and I would say that, you know, the thing that I appreciated as an ideological minority around people um, was not necessarily when they would come and just say, "Well, we should give." Zed a chance to say something just because he's the token, you know, whatever, lefty or whatever. The thing that I appreciated, I think, was when people um, would, one, engage with me and not just, like, you know, attack me or demean me or anything. But, two, like, they would really engage with me with respect. So, like, if they disagree with me, they would let me know they disagreed with me. But they wouldn't make it personal. Um, and, you know, they would give me, a, you know, like, a real representation, like, allow me to represent my views. And I think that's really the way to approach this. It's not so much to say, well... You know, I'm in one ideological camp. I just don't understand the other one, so I'm just going to go give them a microphone and let them talk and say, "Now I respect them." That's not that's not really that's not real representation, and also it's very patronizing um, to them. You know, the way to approach it is one to respect them as human beings, to understand that someone can have a completely different worldview, or even in this case, from this study, you can see they may have a different tribe, even if they don't have that super different beliefs, um, but that they're just as committed to it as you are, and you should respect them for that. Uh, reason, but you should feel free to disagree with it and to civilly debate it and have dialogue around it. And I think that's, you know, that's part of what Barack Obama did in that 2008 campaign. He staked out his positions, but he was willing to go and talk to, you know, we had the infamous Joe the Plumber moment, right? Um, Joe the Plumber became kind of a, a celebrity on the right for standing up to Obama. And Barack Obama, I think, earned a lot of people's respect just for talking to him. I mean, he's just like an average guy out in, uh, I don't remember where it was, maybe it was Ohio, I don't remember where it was, but um, I think both sides kind of earned respect because they were able to kind of have that dialogue with each other uh, about that issue. And of course, later on, he became such a folk hero himself uh, and more of a right-wing activist in terms of Joe the Plumber. But I think in that moment, it was really a good, it was kind of a good kind of um, microcosm of what we want to see. We want to see people who, who have come from very different social networks and backgrounds and tribes be able to sit down and like argue about something about taxes, but be able to pat each other on the back at the end of the day. Um, because it doesn't mean that you don't care about the underlying issues. I think that's one of the mistakes people who identify very strongly as liberals or identify very strongly as conservatives uh, make. You know, they make the belief that if you can civilly talk to someone else, um, that it means you don't care about the issue. You know, they oh, you know, they're on the other side from me on abortion. You know, they have a totally evil, immoral position on abortion. If I don't denounce them with my highest, you know. Uh, tone and with you know get into very personal uh, debates with them uh, that means I don't care about the issue but that's not true um, it's it's not actually not true like people can have very diametrically different uh, positions or even in this case very diametrically diametrically different social networks or tribes but still be able to talk things out and being able to talk things out is one of the ways that not only that you can persuade other people but also you can firm up your own sort of ideology and your own arguments. Um, you know, people have debated, for instance, polarization on college campuses and people like uh, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt has studied the polarization um, of different academic fields on campus. So, for instance, he, I think he's found that, you know, psychology used to be something like four to one or three to one liberal to conservative. And he said, actually, that was fine because that meant that you still had people around you who could debate you, poke holes in your argument, you know, do that. But now it's some, it's like crazy. It's like 30 to 1 or something like that, like liberal to conservative, right? And I probably, personally, probably do side more with liberal psychologists in terms of their worldview. But having the conservatives around is very important in terms of identifying flaws in your arguments and your worldview and sort of your study, your research, and your policy. Um, and so, you know, that's one of the, uh, the, the effects of polarization itself is that people tend to adopt an almost religious kind of um, firmament around whatever they believe because they've never even heard the counter arguments. Now, if you you can hear a counter argument and it won't like you know infect you like poison or something, right? It can actually it can actually in some cases you know make you feel 
a little bit uh, more confident about whatever you believe in, but you'll also be able to more effectively address those counter arguments having known them and, and address them. And I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, the newest kind of negative intervention in this regard is social media, because as we've seen in social media, people are often just sharing stuff that they already agree with. And, and I think the services in terms of the way they built, I mean, you probably know more about this, but in terms of the way they're built, I think they, uh, technologically, they incentivize that. Um, technologically, they, they want to keep showing you stuff that you're going to click like on or that you're going to go and visit and buy a t-shirt from, right? Right, right. So, and, and actually, that's that's a, a great point and sort of an, an, a question I want to conclude on, which is, you know, communication can and will often be not only important to one's own identity to sort of, as you mentioned, um, spiritedly debate and unpack um, one's own kind of holes and, and, and thinking around those holes. Uh, but it's also going to be important for the way that society just is sort of built moving forward. And, you know, you are a reporter that has, you know, ostensibly grown up in the era of digital reporting. Um, we are also, uh, you know, young enough to, to say that we've grown up in the era of, of Facebook and Twitter and other advents of social media. I kind of want to just you know, ask you one last question about what you touched upon in terms of how information gets hardened through digital distribution. I mean, you know, this week we we notably have the, the CEO of Facebook testifying in front of Congress, more so on the data protection side, but it does beg the question of how online um, technologies and tools, which are a powerful force of dissemination of information and have, you know, led to the rise of, of revolutions in certain countries and, and maybe arguably are leading to a rise in our own revolution here in the United States. They can be forces for good. They can also, you know, be challenging in terms of, of, of uh, firming up those divisions. As, as a journalist yourself that leverages online tools that maybe communicates with your readers through the internet, what are your perspectives on on how not just Facebook, but how technology as a information distribution mechanism is shaping this landscape of social distancing between issues and ideology and the identity that we maintain therein? Well, you know, part of it is um, as you know, I, I I don't necessarily have a big social prescription for that, but I think that in terms of my personal habits, I make a point that on social media, I be friends with people that I don't agree with. I follow people I don't agree with. Um, I try to go to news sources that I don't really agree with. Um, you know, I make sort of a conscious effort to do that because I understand that if I don't do that, then it'll, I will very easily be siloed. And not only does that mean maybe I wouldn't change my mind, but it also would mean that perhaps the way that I express myself and my, even my deeply held beliefs would not be as effective because I'm not as aware of what people who disagree with me believe and I'm not as uh, aware of how to effectively persuade other people. Um, so in terms of, you know, I, I do think that the these platforms are overall, you know, a, a social good when it comes to issues like politics and social issues because it spread they spread information very easily, um, very quickly. I can, you know, monitor what's going on in an election halfway around the world thanks to these uh, platforms because I follow reporters and activists in other countries who can keep me clued in. So I do think, you know, they have a lot of really uh, sort of positive potential. But I think people should understand that they, they can make polarization and siloing much worse. And you have to make some kind of a conscious effort um, to get around that a lot of the time. You have to intentionally say, okay, am I really only getting one side of things here? Um, and, you know, when it comes to the actual issue of of the paper, of Mason's paper, that people are much more into the the tribes or the labels than they are the issues. I think something that social media is not helpful in that regard is that so much of it is just like, almost it's like opposition research in a campaign, right? It's like, this is what a really dumb liberal at a college campus did, you know, today. Look at all those liberals, that's how they are. Or look at look how intolerant this conservative, you know, city councilman in Topeka is or something, right? Like it's, it's, it's kind of organizing you for kind of a war against the other tribe every day, right? And I think you, you know, it's not that you shouldn't be able to read critical stories of someone, but you should be able to, you should be able to properly contextualize that, I think, when you read it. And, you know, a lot of what you read doesn't, you know, I would just avoid reading too much kind of partisan ideological stuff all the time anyway. Just try to read like 
you know, really deeply reported stories about an issue, um, read, you know, research about issues. Um, and, you know, it, it's always a good idea to share a story with someone you disagree with and talk out your differences about it, you know, kind of civilly. Um, what Mason suggested was that, hey, you know, if you have a neighbor you disagree with politically, um, start talking to them about something that isn't politics. Um, start talking to them about their dog, about, you know, their how's their family going, their work. Um, because I think, you know, because so much of the social distancing is based on perceived tribes and social networks, if you can integrate those tribes and social networks in other ways, that would break down a lot of what's preventing you from talking about the issues. Um, that certainly was the case for me. I think the number one reason why I have such an easy time uh, digesting conservative, when I'm not very conservative, when I have an easy time digesting conservative writers and thought and talking to conservatives, just because I was around so many, but through no choice of my own, when I was uh, younger and growing up in Georgia, uh, I just really, you know, I don't have a lot of sensitivity about that. I, I have a fine time uh, talking to people um, who are conservative and I, you know, it doesn't usually get, sometimes it does get tense and then we you know you can step away from it and come talk to them later or something. But I think that uh, it really helped me out in terms of understanding how to engage with people, um, even when we may self-identify in completely different uh, social networks or, or political tribes. Absolutely. And especially if, you know, if, if the success of Donald Trump's campaign was relatively devoid of prescriptive or, or I guess cogent policy prescriptions, um, then it certainly suggests that, you know, the policy debates alone were not the central points of conflict. It was, is that of kind of broader sense of identity. And, you know, to your right. point, if we can plug into one another's identity or at least try and integrate it in some capacity, perhaps then we might have a path forward. Zed Jelani is a reporter for The Journalist who most recently wrote on how polarization uh, in America is driven by team mentalities as illuminated by Professor Laurel Mason's work out of the University of Maryland. Zed, thank you so much for, for not only your work, but for joining American Enough. All right. Thank you so much. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.